Hi, and thank you for listening to Next Level Medical Assisting. Uh, This podcast is all about medical assisting and how we can be better, more efficient, and more patient-oriented. It will be positive and supportive, bringing together medical assistants and other clinical staff to be able to lightheartedly discuss medical assisting and related areas while exchanging ideas for how to be a better MA, such as compassion, detail-orientedness, staying professional, avoiding complacency, etc. There will be no politics or controversial topics here. Now for the legal stuff, the views and opinions stored and shared in this podcast are my own and are not endorsed by or representative of my employer. In addition, I am not a licensed medical professional approved to give medical advice. The information in this podcast is not in any way intended to be medical advice. Always seek the help of your physician or another qualified medical professional for any medical questions or concerns. Hello and welcome back to Next Level Medical Assisting with uh, me, your host, Zach. And so this is uh, Season 1, Episode 6 here. This is sort of like an ongoing from the previous episode. Episode 5, we had adult immunizations and injections. Um, And so this time we're going to go through pediatric and adolescent immunizations and tips for how to administer them. So first off, I want to say thank you to everybody who's taken the time to listen to this podcast. Uh, We are at a total of of 50 total plays at the time of this recording and considering it's so niche and there's so many other podcasts and other things to keep our attention these days i'm very excited to see how it's coming along so thank you to all the listeners and i encourage you to give me feedback either on twitter at uh, capital n capital l capital m capital a under slash capital o official uh, or by email at next level medical assisting at outlook.com or by leaving me a voice message on anchor.fm I would love to have a, to- have a topic suggested or comments left or even just general se- suggestions for future episodes. Now let's get to the topic of today's episode, pediatric and adolescent immunizations and my tips for how to administer them. It's important to note here that I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist and have no formal education in the development of children. I am basing this knowledge simply on my own experience of giving thousands of pediatric injections over 14 years. Also, full disclosure, I've never worked in a pediatric clinic, but I have worked in a very busy family medicine clinic that administered, on average, approximately 20 to 40 immunizations per day to children. Uh, I know in my area, it's not common to be able to actually give shots to kids in MA school. I would think it's similar around the country, but I suppose it's possible in some places there is, is a system set up for it. My second job out of school was at the busy community health family medicine clinic and when i when i started i had never actually administered immunization to anybody under the age of 18 but i was a full-blown ma with a year of quote-unquote experience and was expected to feel comfortable performing uh this this job to be honest i was terrified when i first started i was i was able to shadow a co-worker luckily and see how they did it and get tips but when the time came to do it myself I might have looked like I was confident at the time, but I know I was freaking out in my head. Obviously, as we see now, everything turned out okay, and I quickly became comfortable over time and gradually learned tips and tricks for how to how to do what needed to be done. For <clears throat> excuse me, for children's vaccine in the United States, we have a program called Vaccine for Children. It's my understanding that each state has their own regulations and programs uh, for how to administer the VFC. Uh, vaccines while the funding comes from the federal government. Here in Washington state, each clinic will have at least one vaccine for children's coordinator that is responsible for the auditing of the vaccines. 
um, this for excuse me for the auditing of the, the vaccine supply ordering, submitting monthly reports, helping educate other staff on VFC processes, as well as being the liaison for the local county health department overseeing the program for that clinic, among other things, uh, you know, among other duties regarding that. And so it's somebody that's kind of the point person on, on vaccines for children. Not long after I started at this community clinic, I was actually appointed to be the BFC coordinator. And all of a sudden I went from being new to pediatric vaccines to being the point man for them. I quickly dived into the world of vaccines and educated myself on the schedules and the intricacies of them and the importance of ensuring the correct timing of, of doses. I ended up loving it and grew a passion for it that is still present to this day. I uh, really, uh, you know, if you would ask me before I did that, I, I probably would have been kind of hesitant to acknowledge uh you know any excitement about doing it <clears throat> but um i really ended up loving it and seeing how important it was and just sort of staying on top of it with the updates and, and learning the details of it and and learning that you know what it takes to be able to do that efficiently and, and to make sure we're doing it safely in the past episode we discussed adult injections and we covered the five r's uh for ensuring accuracy and safety we won't go over them over them again in this episode since they are applied to this the same way to children. However, I would encourage you to listen to episode five for the details. In this episode, we will focus more on tips for how to approach patients and make the experience safer for everybody, as well as minimizing the trauma of the experience for both the patient and the parents, which is a very important aspect for this, given that the, the patients, at least in relation to this episode, are going to be under 18. Uh, some of them very young, you know, some older, but nonetheless, the parents are usually present. And, you know, it, it can be a stressful situation for them as well. I do want to add that in the last episode, I did not mention vaccine information statements, also known as VISs, uh, the importance of them and, and, and the fact that they are, of course, the law, at least in the United States. It is very common for patients to decline the VIS or leave it in the room uh, and or sort of just in general discard it. And so it can quickly become habit to not even have it to give to the patient. Um, it's like, you know, why am I even doing this? They're not even they're not even going to take it. But it is extremely important to remember that it is federal law that we must at least present the most up-to-date version of the vaccine information statement to the patient prior to the administration of the immunization. It's very important to remember this. You know, I've, I've seen some places that are really good at it, some places that aren't. There's different approaches to take, but nonetheless, it, it has to be presented to the patient or the patient's guardian prior to the administration of the vaccine. Um, and if they have any questions, it's our obligation to answer those questions. And if we can't, we are to check with a nurse or a provider to, to find out any information that we can. I often see multiple copies of a, of a VIS that may be printed and kept in a drawer or on, on hand to give out. <clears throat> in general, this is not best practice because it's not a guarantee that you will be notified right away when an update is loaded, um, such as maybe an email update or, or whatever it may be. Um, and even if you do, you might forget to replace them while, while there's so much else going on. I've seen this a thousand times, you know, it's, it's not considered high priority. And so, you know, it's, it's usually not a good idea to keep, keep extra on hands, at least not any, uh, significant amount and to make sure you're staying on top of what the most up-to-date vaccine information statement is. I personally keep a quick link to immunize.org. That's I-M-M-U-N-I-Z-E. 
www.ghostdetectingcenter.org. Uh, they have uh, it's a government affiliated website that has links to all the most up to date um, VISs, uh, as well as they have most of them in several languages, whether they're the most up-to-date or not, they'll be the most up-to-date in that language. And it's very quick to just click on that link, go to the VIS, print it out, and know for a fact that I have the most up-to-date information. So let's start with the, the youngest patients, the newborns. As we learned in school, the preferred area for an intramuscular injection on a patient younger than one year old is, is the thigh. Uh, as small it is this, as small as it is at this stage, it's still one of the largest muscles. And so I, I was originally trained that a, that a one-inch needle should be used regardless of the size of the patient uh, for IM. But recently, I have seen some updated guidance noting that a five-eighths of an inch needle. Uh, I also read about a seven-eighths of an inch needle might be appropriate <clears throat> for some patients. I believe the idea with the longer needle is that there is less of a concern with going too deep instead of not going deep enough. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, but my experience uh, from hitting the bone is usually not even noticed by the patient, although I've, I have heard it can be more painful and noticeable at times. So I haven't seen that, but I've read some stories about it or heard stories. Obviously, it's not ideal, but in general, it doesn't seem uh, to affect the patient too much, at least from my experience. If you hit a bone, it's usually sufficient to pull back a little, aspirate slightly to ensure that you're not in a major vessel or pull back on the plunger and see if any blood comes out. Uh, and then to inject the vaccine as normal if it doesn't. If it does, you should you know, back it out and you know, redo the process really from step one, redraw the vaccine and go at it again. So there are several components for newborns and very young patients to factor in, including the size of the, the, size of the patient or the baby the anxiety of the parents, uh, which is usually higher uh, if they are first-time parents, and how fragile the babies can seem. Uh, I know I realize it seems pretty obvious, but every time I see uh, a newborn, I'm always surprised at how small they actually are. They're very fragile and very, uh, they just, you know, it's, it's more or less shocking every time. Uh, and so having to give them a, a poke, you know, can seem like a, a little bit overwhelming, but it is important. Generally in the U.S., the only vaccine a newborn will get <clears throat> at the time of birth is a hepatitis B dose number one. This is commonly given shortly after the time of birth, but it's not uncommon for it to be deferred until a follow-up uh, with the primary care provider three days later, or may even be deferred even further, you know, at the discretion of the parents or the providers or whatnot. So it's not always given. Um, you know, more often than not, it's given in the hospital at the time of birth, but it's also not uncommon to administer it in the primary care office as well. <clears throat> the approach to this is actually mostly focused on the parents because the patient is so small and young that they are unaware of what is happening and likely will cry after. But in my experience, it is fairly passive. The one thing I pay the most attention to is, is the parent's mood and demeanor and will actively engage them and ensure I answer any questions they may have, as well as chat about one topic or another to help distract them, while also appearing confident so they know that so so they see that I know what I'm doing, which will hopefully calm their nerves. Given that this is usually just the one heavy injection, you're not having to coordinate more than one shot, which is actually sort of a nice reprieve. Um, for the parents and yourself and for the patient. And so it's, you know, these parents, even if they're not brand new parents, a lot of times they're very nervous, you know, and, and I don't blame them one bit, uh, but it's just very important for us to, you know, 
appear very confident in what we're doing and, and make sure we're doing the right things so the parents um, feel safe and confident what you're doing and also giving them a chance to ask any questions uh, that if we can't answer, we can check with a nurse or provider, but it's important to be able to address those concerns um, prior to administering the vaccine. <clears throat> the next step would be two month old babies. Uh, for the purposes of this discussion, I feel that two to nine months fit well into a, a general behavioral category uh, when it comes to vaccines. Gradually as they age, they become more aware of what's happening. Uh, and will react accordingly. But from two to nine months, there is still minimal awareness to what is about to happen. And the main reaction comes after the shot. Although often they will start getting fussy when you position them, uh, whether it's because you are a stranger or they know what's coming is not necessarily clear to me. Uh, but, you know, once you start to maneuver them and put them in a position that's going to be best for what you're going to do, you know, a lot of times they're, you know, they'll start crying or be fussy and not be too happy about it, uh, whether it's because they don't know what's happening or, or what's going on. <clears throat> By this time, parents have usually seen at least one injection uh, and will be a little bit more comfortable, not necessarily extremely comfortable, but, you know, it kind of varies on the parents and the experience, but they'll at least have been through, for the most part, uh, the one poke. I still, I still try to pay attention to the parents, uh, but also will keep a close eye on the patient as they will click, quickly get strong enough to physically react enough that it could affect your process or catch you off guard. I've actually had a baby kick hard enough to actually bend the needle before I could pull it out. That definitely caught me, up, caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting it. Uh, maybe not so much around the two months, but as you get closer to the nine months, you know, and different babies of different sizes can react different. And so it's, you know, you just want to want to be prepared for the unexpected. In addition, at these ages, there is more vaccines they are due for according to the standard United States immunization schedule uh, and according to ACIP the Advisory Council on Immunization Practices here in the United States. Some parents will choose an alternative schedule and that is their right and should be discussed with the provider uh, and, and administered appropriately. Obviously, we're not doing anything that the parents don't consent to. And so some, some parents have a preference on an alternate schedule. Uh, you know, rarely you'll come across a patient, uh, parent who is anti-vax and, and maybe doesn't want any at the moment or at the time or at all. And it's, you know, it's our job to relay that to the provider and have the provider chat with them and see what the best approach to that is. Uh, but nonetheless, if the parents don't want it, um, obviously we don't have consent to give it. When it comes to multiple immunizations being administered at the same visit, this presents a couple of other things to account for. One being remembering which order you gave them and which, uh, which site each was given. There are several ways to do this. You can first openly discuss this with the parents. You can write it down prior to the administration for documenting later. Um, and so or something I do often is group them together uh, as in if I have four injections, two being uh, pre-drawn syringes that are already um, packaged in syringes and just need a need a needle attached, and two being, say, vials that I need to draw up, I will usually group the vial vaccines together and then the pre-drawn together. Um, and this could include both IM or SQ injections. And so, it, because of, at least where I'm at, they're you know they they're more than likely going to look and be in different syringes and look different. And so, it's easier mentally, at least for me, to to recall that and not get it mixed up. <clears throat> so it's less of a chance of me forgetting or documenting incorrectly. 
You know, rotavirus is an oral vaccine that is also given at this time. Uh, personally, myself, I choose to give it uh, at, as the last one, as I have realized that uh, the patients or the babies tend to enjoy the taste and, and it can usually help calm them down after the vaccines. I have personally never tried this myself, at least as an adult, obviously, but uh, unfortunately I have had a parent that has told me they have tried it and that it's very sweet. I don't recommend it. I didn't condone it and it didn't happen in front of me, um, but they had admitted to it uh, and said it was very sweet. So it does correlate with what I see when you give it to the, the babies that it tends to be something that they more or less enjoy, not always, but more or less. Um, and I, I will often allow the parents to give it to the child, uh, but I'm always sure to watch to ensure it was done properly. Since when I document, I'm verifying that it was given and given properly and given in the full amount. And so it's important <clears throat> that if you don't actually give it yourself, that you actually observe it being given properly. Um, this should be obvious, but for the reasons for remembering the order and the sites you gave the shots is important for billing purposes. You know, when, when we document, at least where I'm at, we document, you know, whether it was a first or, or you know, first injection or um, an alternate injection after that. And so it, you know, ends up on the on the other end. Um, but uh, more importantly, it's if, in case the patient has a reaction to one of the injections that you gave them, so you know which vaccine it was. Obviously, if you don't, you know, if you're documenting random sites, you're not going to recall accurately which one was given where, and they could, uh, you know, in error be be uh, be advised that they're allergic to a certain vaccine that they're not actually allergic to, and then even worse, get the vaccine they are allergic to, get it again in the future. <clears throat> and so there's there's other ways to ensure you document this and remember, but it's important to always ensure that it's done and done, you know, on time, quickly, right after the the, the administration. So when it comes to placement and how to restrain children of this age of, you know, two to nine months, I personally prefer the method of having the child lay on their back on the exam table. I will raise the table to a comfortable height for me to work with while making sure that somebody, whether myself or one of the parents or a coworker, uh, is securing the patient, the baby at all times. For obvious reasons, you don't want them to roll off the table you know, especially when it's higher up. But nonetheless, you just want to make sure somebody is keeping an eye on the patient and not get not get too distracted is very important. Um, I usually will have their the patient's feet towards me and mom and or dad near the head. Uh, I ask the parents to distract and secure the patient's upper body and I will hold the leg that will be injected uh, with one hand and do the injection with the other hand. This tends to work pretty well, but when they get close, closer to six to nine months, they may be strong enough that you might need assistance with the legs, at which point either a parent or a coworker can assist. You know, whatever whatever you do, it's most important that you feel safe doing it and that, you know, you have you have the help that you need right there with you, uh, even if you have to get other coworkers in the room with you. Which brings me to a good point. Parents will often say that they are comfortable holding the child. Uh, but sometimes when the child reacts, they underestimate the strength or they don't want to feel like they are hurting the child and will let go or not hold strong enough. If I have any doubts about this, I will not, I will not ask the parents um, to hold any critical part of the patient's body. I like to advise them that it's okay if they don't think they can do it. 
but if they are not sure, to please tell me so I can ask a coworker for help. And I let them know this is for the safety of everybody in the room, so as not to have an accidental needle stick or, or need to redo a vaccine because something went wrong. And so, you know, it's it's okay. Uh, you know, I'm a parent as well, and I understand how that perspective goes. And so if, if for some reason they're not able to, and for the most part in my experience, they've been honest and upfront and have let me know if they have concerns about it. Uh, of course, they can still be there comforting the child, but I won't have them hold any critical part of the body. Uh, so as, as there's not any, you know, inadvertent uh, jerking or, or movement. When I'm done with each injection, I make sure to activate the safety and put it immediately into the sharps container or at the very least in a secure spot well away from the patient or anybody else in the room. After the last one, I will clean the mess and I make a point to step out as quickly as possible as I realize it's not necessarily a pleasant experience for the patient or the parents. And I'll always make sure to tell them to take their time. There is no rush. So this is really important. You know, it's it's been, uh, you know, it can be uh, a bit of an experience for the parents and the, and the patient and and you know for us it's like oh we you know we gave another shot and we did what we had to do and now we're on our way and i need the room so i need these these patients to leave uh but you know it's very important to give them the, the time you know to sort of recover from this if you will or to do what needs to be done i make a point of letting them know they're very welcome to stay and feed either with a breast or a bottle uh, to help calm the patient down if they would like to. Uh, I do realize I'm, 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 I, I'm fully aware that most clinics do not have extra space and available exam rooms can be hard to come by, but I've never had a parent stay beyond really a few moments or, or maybe a little more. Um, and they are always appreciative of the time. And so it's, you know, they're very aware of, of how you're reacting to the situation. And, you know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Obviously, it's going to depend on what's happening in that moment. But, you know, even if they do stay and you need the room, it's just good service to either go out of your way to find an alternate room to use for your next patient, even if it's inconvenient to the flow or 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 the other. The other thing would be to very politely apologize to the parents and offer an alternate space for them to move to. Uh, but please don't ask them to step to the restroom. You know, it's in general, you know, there's no reason for that. Uh, we should find something else. If they choose to do that, that's entirely up to them. But the first option should be an alternate exam room or a private space uh, where they can do what needs to be done because it's very important and it's just something that we need to do to give them that next level of service. Um, and, you know, really what it comes down to is, is trading your convenience for theirs to ensure that you're giving them next level service. So getting into one-year-old, uh, the children are pretty well aware that something is unpleasant is coming for the most part uh, when, when, when they're there and, and you're about to do vaccines. Uh, it is possible they can, they can be really distracted, uh, but once you lay them down or have the parent hold them, they usually realize something not fun is coming. At this age, at this age is when you would usually switch to using the upper arm of the deltoid muscle to start giving IM injections. Uh, I have had patients small enough that I will still use the thigh, so judgment is appropriate, but the deltoid is generally advised at this point. Um, you know, size can factor in, demeanor of the child, preference of the parents. The thigh is still okay to use. It's a legitimate muscle to, to inject into. And so if that's the preference or that fits the situation, then, then usually it's okay to do. 
as always, please make sure you're following your clinic's protocols and, and policies for, for how to do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you're giving the injection in the deltoid, this part can get a little tricky uh, since giving injections in the upper arm is different than the thigh. So, you know, it requires, it's in the upper body. There's a, some more mobility there. It requires a different approach usually and also allows for more possible movement by the patient, you know, during the process. There are several ways to do this, and I will not recommend a specific one. Your company might have protocols for this, so please check to ensure you're doing it the way your employer wants. You know, there are different approaches. I'm just gonna sort of go over what I, what I generally do in my preference, uh, but it doesn't mean it has to be done this way. I personally like to have the patient either sit on the parent's lap and straddle them while they, so they're facing the parent and, and, and their chests are together and the parent can hug them while they hold the arms or to have the patient sit on the parent's lap sideways while the parent uh, hugs them. And so, you know, the idea is to just get them in this loving position that, that is not intimidating and not, not, not causing trauma any more than it has to and, and to show them that they're being supported while also, you know, physically supporting uh, the, their body so there's not, you know, no inadvertent jerks or movements. The second position will only work, however, if you are only using one of the patient's arms. Uh, again, you know, when I'm done, I dispose of the parts as appropriate and step out to give them privacy. So in this position, the, the patient's either left or right shoulder is generally, uh, you know, exposed to you. If you need both arms, this is not an appropriate position because the other arm is going to be up against the, the parent's chest. Uh, and it's, it wouldn't be safe or appropriate to try to administer a vaccine that way. It is possible that you could turn the patient around and continue, which, you know, I've seen done before. It can work, but it does cause a delay there in, in having to move the patient, which, you know, ultimately can sort of um, alter the flow of how things are going. The next overall group would be toddlers, roughly from two to five years old. Uh, clearly, some changes will be necessary depending on the demeanor and personality of the patient, uh, as well as their size. This is similar to one-year-olds, except that the patients are, are usually notably bigger and stronger uh, and much more aware. Uh, the procedure to hold the child, as well as for administering the vaccines, is also similar, but more awareness of the ability of the parent to restrain the child, among other things, should be taken into account. You know, it's, it's not uncommon to have siblings in the same room that may or may not need vaccines of their own that day. And thought should be given to how to handle that and understand that other children in the room raises the risk of an error uh, due to being distracted uh, or of them unexpectedly getting in the way. And so, you know, a lot of times I've noticed older siblings like to see what's going on or ask questions. And, and you know, that's okay as long as it's done safely. Uh, I, you know, if you have to explicitly tell the patient, you know, or the, excuse me, the parents and say, hey, I, I need you to please hold this, hold her or him while I do this so that, you know, so we don't have any accidents. Um, and so you may also ask the parents what they would like to do uh, as a rule of thumb. If more than one of the children need vaccines that day, I start with the youngest first and move up by age. Uh, this generally has to do with the fact that, you know, as it, I'm not saying they're going to enjoy it or, or be okay with it, but if the, if the other children can't step out of the room with, say, another parent or the parents don't want to, I will start with the youngest, uh, go from there, and I will try to re reassuringly talk with the other patients to let them know that, you know, how brave their sibling is doing and how, how, how easy it, you know, how, how well they're doing and how fast it's going to go. 
Um, so when the time comes that there's less fear, you know, realistically, there's still going to be, there's obviously going to be fear. They're going to be afraid for the most part, but I just do my best to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm not a monster. I'm here to do this. Uh, and I, you know, I really am trying to, you know, do this without pain. And I, I, I care about how you feel. So starting with this toddler age and older, uh, this is when distracting the patient tactic really becomes helpful as opposed to the parents. So I had mentioned last week that discussing animals or pets is a topic that most people can relate to and, and for the most part brings up happy thoughts. Uh, but other good ideas are asking the patient if they play sports or what they do for fun about their brothers or sisters and if they get along. You know, I like to sometimes just make jokes about how they tease each other. I myself have one brother and two sisters, and you know, we, we did a lot of that as well. And so it's something they can relate to and usually are more than happy to, to chat about. Uh, you know, favorite foods work as well. And, and really there are, you know, an infinite amount of topics uh, that could work, uh, you know, but I use these ones very often with success. The food is a good one because a lot of times the parents can also get in on the conversation. And, and you, I like to ask, you know, who, who cooks the best food, mom or dad, or what's your favorite meal? And the parents will get involved as well. And it sort of, you know, makes more for a more jovial environment um, for that discussion. At this time, I will usually be a little more upfront uh, as, as well by letting the patient know that it's okay if they need to make a noise or yell or even cry, but it's, it's very important that they don't move. And so I, I will talk to them directly and sort of, you know, look at them and address them directly and, and let them know, hey, you know, if you if you need to cry, that's okay. And and if you don't, that's fine, too. But, you know, whatever you need to do is okay. But it's just very important that you don't move. So, you know, we don't we don't hurt anybody or cause any errors, uh, you know, and 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 make a mistake. And so it's it's, you know, the most important thing is that they don't move. But other than that, you know, it's it's okay. It's all right. You're not going to get into trouble for for crying or yelling or, or making a noise. Um, depending on the patient, they may prefer to sit with a parent and have them hold them, or they may prefer to just hold their hands. Uh, and so, you know, it just depends on, on what the patient is comfortable with and, you know, who the patient is and how old they are. And, you know, it just kind of depends, but uh, whatever, whatever works for them, whatever they prefer is, is okay. Uh, obviously within reason, but for the most part, usually I can work around it. Um, occasionally, I will have parents uh, who say that their child is calm and brave enough to sit still and behave. You know, it's, it's actually happens more than you might think. And, and, you know, about, in my experience, the parents are right about 50 to 75% of the time. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, it's one thing, the parents, a lot of times these children are very calm uh, and, and, you know, are able to sit still, but, you know, sometimes when you, when you come at them, you know, with a needle or with their thinking in their head, and it can be difficult even for adults to do. And so I don't blame them one bit, uh, you know, when they get a little anxious or unable to hold still. And so I will usually give the benefit of the doubt and proceed as I'm going to do the, the vaccine, but I keep a close eye on the patient. If at any point I have doubts, I will strongly encourage the parent to hold the child. I soften this request by telling them that it's not that 
I don't believe they can't stay calm, but it, as a precaution for safety, it's necessary. And that it's, you know, totally normal for children of this age to, to react like that. And if they were able to hold, if they were able to hold still, that would be the exception. Uh, I will sometimes see children of about five to 10 years old that will actively, uh, excuse me, actively verbalize their excitement about getting vaccines. Uh, in general, for me, this has usually been a warning sign uh, that when the time comes to inject, they will quickly change attitude and not want it. Uh, you know, again, I'm not a child psychologist, but it, it to me, it seems um, pretty par for the course for certain age ranges. Uh, I, I, the way I see it is they're, you know, psychologically pumping themselves up to get the vaccine, uh, you know, but when the time comes, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a different experience. And so, I, I, you know, I, I keep an eye on it. Again, I will usually give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, but more often than not, when they say that, usually there's, you know, they're not they're not so keen to to just go along with it without some assistance. And so, lastly, we'll talk about how to handle children old enough to know what's going to happen, uh, and and how some of them will fight, you know, tooth and nail to avoid it. Ultimately, the parent or legal guardian have the final say, uh, and if they insist. Uh, that um, if they insist, then restraint to a certain appropriate extent is justified. Very important, be aware of your clinic's policies and rules for restraint and what is and is not allowed. Uh, you know, there it's, it's very important. Restraint is a serious thing. It should be used with, um, you know, serious discretion. And, you know, really, if it's anything more than, than just basic having the parent hold them, you know, I would check with the provider and or the manager uh, to make sure that, you know, how to go about it, what's appropriate. And of course, if at any time the parents say to stop or don't feel comfortable, by all means, you stop right away. Okay. We're just there to do a job, but the parents have the final say. And if they don't, if they don't want to do it, uh, then, then we're not going to do it. And it will have to be addressed in some other manner. Uh, with smaller stature kids, this is not too difficult to overcome uh, with uh, other staff members and, and parents to help having the patient sit on the parent's lap cross-legged uh, on the top of the excuse me have the parents legs crossed over the top of the patients while the, the patient is sitting on their lap um, while the parent also bear hugs them with the deltoid area exposed and so you know it's sort of like a kind of like the bear hug with like i was saying with the legs crossed over it tends to work pretty well you know, also the, the patient is is usually, you know, um, sort of in, encased with the parent and a lot of times can provide comfort. But realistically, if it comes to that point, usually they're they're you know, they're not going to be too happy about what's going to happen. Um, so it's you know, another thing about this is reassurement. OK, so that, you know, it can be easy to to say, oh, man, this patient is you know upset and really screaming and making life difficult. But, you know, it's fear. The fear is real and they're afraid. And so by all means, you, you should reassure them and comfort them and understand that what they're going through for them at that moment in time is traumatic, even though we mean well, you know, and, and treat it as such. And so it's it's very important to not forget, uh, you know, how the patient is feeling and why it's important. Um, occasionally, if the parent is not comfortable doing the sort of bear hug with the, the patient on their lap with the cross legs, um, I will... I will do this myself, uh, but I will make sure to have explicit permission from the parent uh, and that the parent is in the room. 
um, and that if for any reason I feel this is not appropriate, I won't do it. Um, but a lot of times, you know, sometimes it is and, and it's okay. And I just make, if I'm holding them, somebody else is giving the vaccines and I make, I make every effort beyond to reassure them and comfort them that, you know, they're, that they're doing a great job and it's going to be okay. It's all right. So I want to be clear here and use of restraint in any manner should be used with a minimum amount needed to perform the procedure procedure. And as stated previously, the provider uh, and or the manager should always be consulted if anything other than basic parent holding and distraction is used. Um, you know, what you want to clarify what level of restraint is allowed and how it should be done. Do not take restraint lightly. It can be extremely traumatizing. So remember this, okay, and make sure, ask for advice, ask a coworker, ask your manager, ask your supervisor, ask the doctor, the ordering provider, ask the nurse, ask somebody for assistance on what they would do and how to go about it. Uh, don't just assume that, that you're doing the right thing if you're not sure. And again, if at any point the parent says to stop, then you should stop immediately. The parents have final say, uh, the parents or the legal guardian, whoever that may be, uh, and so if they don't feel comfortable, then we stop and we, we, we go from there. As an extra precaution during this process or the hold with the bear hug and the cross legs, I will usually have a coworker hold the arm to be injected in addition to the bear hug so the patient doesn't unexpectedly jerk or pull away. Uh, this process becomes more difficult when multiple injections are needed, but safety should be priority number one and then speed uh, to minimize the trauma for the patient. And so, you know, the longer it takes, the, the worse it's going to be or, or the longer the, the bad experiences. Uh, and so having somebody else there to hold the arm in addition to the bear hug can be very helpful to make sure that something doesn't slip and the, the arm moves. There are so many variables that can change depending on the patient, the clinic, the age, etc. that it's really not possible to give a step-by-step -step walkthrough of how to give vaccines to pediatric patients. Um, the most important thing is to remember uh, the five R's, to remember absolute safety, uh, and to do it efficiently to make the experience as brief as possible. And again, that the patient's feelings matter. Very important. Even if they seem unreasonable to you, such as screaming at the top of their lungs or you know intense physical attempts to to not be poked uh, their feelings are real and should be treated as such it's a balance of what we have to do as part of the vaccine process as well as attending to the patient's concerns as well as the parents concerns and so overall that you know this is you know it's a it can be a sensitive process but uh you know once you do it enough you get a little bit more comfortable um, and just don't forget to take the, you know, the patient's feelings into account uh, and make sure that you're, you know, getting assistance if you need to and, and make sure you're doing the whole process safely and efficiently the way it should be done. Um, because even though for you, you've done it a thousand times sometimes or after a while, you know, for the patient, it's not the case. And it's, it's usually, if not new, it's still a scary experience. So it's very important to approach it like that uh, and, and just be aware of that and let them know you're not there to hurt them. You know, we're just doing what needs to be done for their health uh, and, and really we're there to support them. 
So that that pretty much sums it up for this episode. Uh, thank you for listening to Next Level Medical Assisting. Uh, I would love to have some listeners follow me on Twitter at NLMA under slash official, uh, or even send me an email about whatever you want. Uh, could be a comment, could be criticism, or anything, really. I promise you won't hurt my feelings. I will do my best to accommodate any requests or suggestions. And so thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Thank you. Thank you.